From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Friday, November 2nd. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. In just four days, Americans vote for president, and the rest of the world is watching. American presidents, American politicians, they the cowboys, they come here to our country to take our bucks and go. We view the election through the prism of the Middle East, and later with storm damage wreaking havoc on their communities, New Yorkers discover their bikes. It's a teachable moment for New Yorkers to recognize their own ability to get around in ways they didn't think they could before. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Superstorm Sandy has dominated the headlines here and around the globe all this week. Rightly so, as millions of Americans continue to struggle with the storm's aftermath. And the presidential election is now just four days away and also demanding attention. There is no shortage, though, of crises elsewhere in the world, especially in the Middle East. This week, Syria has seen some of the most intense violence since the uprising against President Bashar al-Assad began a year and a half ago. The Syrian conflict is often described in simple terms, freedom-fighting rebels trying to topple a brutal dictatorship. But whoever wins the U.S. presidential vote on Tuesday will have to grapple with an uncomfortable reality about Syria. Both sides stand accused of committing atrocities. A video posted on YouTube today shows 10 captured government soldiers, some of them wounded, being abused and then executed by rebels. That video was posted by the London-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is normally sympathetic to the rebels. The footage could not be verified, but Rupert Colville, a spokesman for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, says the incident must be investigated. We need to examine this carefully, but the allegations are that these were soldiers who were no longer combatants. Uh, And therefore, at this point, it looks very likely that this is a war crime. The civil war in Syria is just one of the complex situations in the Middle East that will face the White House, regardless of who occupies it next January. And what the White House says and does could have an enormous influence on the people of the region. As a result, they're watching the contest intently. My colleague Marco Werman is in London talking to people from all over the globe about the American presidency. And Marco, I know today you're focusing on the role that America's presidents have played in the Arab world. That's right, Lisa. I'm on the Edgware Road, a busy stretch of central London. And everywhere you turn, you hear Arabic spoken. The smell of mint-flavored tobacco drifts down the road. A lot of people in this neighborhood or their parents came to London to escape oppressive regimes back home. And they recall that for years, American presidents, Republicans and Democrats, gave support to those regimes. Take Sura, for example, born here to Iraqi parents. It's pretty obvious that every single American president that has ever interfered with the Middle East has always done so for their own ulterior motives. 
Then in late 2010 and 2011, there were, of course, uprisings across the Arab world. Leaders in Tunisia and Egypt fell, in Libya too, ending in that grisly death of Muammar Gaddafi. The novelist Ghazi Giblawi watched his country's revolution from here in London, and he told me the American president played a big part in the drama. Yeah, 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 of course, that, that, that's definite, without any, without any doubt. For example, Obama's um, speech uh, on the uh, eve of uh, the intervention in Libya was very important. We watched that uh, speech, and when he started to say, for example, places and cities that are dear to us as Libyans and that we empathize with. From Ajubia, Misrata, and Zawiya. And we find an American president that never been there and never known about these places, maybe even know, doesn't know this place on the map, and talks about it. It is important that made, made the decision very decisive and made us more and more think that it is, this is happening, this is true, this is, this is not going to be just a speech. Ghazi Geblawi comes to this cafe once a week to meet a friend of his, another Libyan named Juma Bukleb. He's a poet and also the cultural attaché at the Libyan embassy here. Bukleb was imprisoned by Gaddafi for 10 years. When he was released, he came to London. While we were talking, I told him that I visited Libya six years ago, and I was struck by how much people there seemed to get a kick out of me being from the U.S. That made a lot of sense to him. It's about the idea of America. America, it's a dream. It's the land of the free. It's the big country. And uh, Libyan, they know by experience, living in Libya with Gaddafi, without the Americans there, it's not good. They're losing. They lost. Economically, they lost. Politically, they lost. Culturally, they lost. May I add something also? Cultural yeah. aspect is very important here. Most of the people over there, I mean, it's even in the Arab world, consume lots of cultural products from America, whether it is in movies, uh, music, books, and so on. And that, I, I, I told people I was from Boston, they said, yeah, Larry Bird, Boston Celtics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So with this kind of backdrop of, of American culture that Libyans have been really kind of consuming over the years, they saw George W. Bush as the cowboy president you know, with the six gun. What are some of the other caricatures that they see in, in U.S. presidents? I, I think I think the cowboy is the image that has been spread all over the world for America. American presidents, American politicians, American business people, they're the cowboy, they, the, they come here to our country to take our bucks and go. But the American, I, I think it's nicer if they be faithful to their culture, that culture that, of freedom. The American presidents is part of this culture, should reflect this culture and their foreign policies dealing with people like us because they're the leaders. The American president is the leader of the free world. You still believe that because a lot of people have rejected that in recent years. Yes. I think if you read the uh, Steinbeck, Greg, uh, Graves of Rat, yeah. you will see that sense of uh, American freedom that I told you not to go out with the stick or the gun. No, we want what you call philosophy of tolerance, accepting the others, defending the others, defending... We want that, we want that, we want that, because we're desperate, desperate for it. And you can read some of Giuma Bukleb's poetry online at theworld.org. He's just one of the many fascinating people I've been meeting in London, 
You can see photos of them on Instagram. Follow PRI The World to get the latest. In the current election, both Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have gone out of their way to portray their commitment to Israel's security. What they haven't talked about much is the Middle East peace process. Peace talks between the Israelis and the Palestinians have ground to a halt at this point. From Jerusalem, the world's Matthew Bell reports on how the unresolved conflict has weighed on presidents in the past and will in the future. Today we celebrate a victory, not of a bloody military campaign, but of an inspiring peace campaign. It's still the high water mark for U.S. presidential involvement in Middle East peacemaking. Jimmy Carter brokered the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel in 1979. We must now demonstrate the advantages of peace and expand its benefits to encompass all those who have suffered so much in the Middle East. Other moments of seeming presidential success followed. The 1993 Clinton-orchestrated handshake between Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The peace treaty between Israel and Jordan the following year. But Yossi Alfer, a former Israeli intelligence official, says U.S. presidents have rarely been the driving force toward peace, at least at first. By and large, the breakthrough between Israel and an Arab partner has happened without American involvement, without even American knowledge, in some cases even against the wishes of the administration. Alfer says Presidents Carter and Clinton picked up on the diplomatic momentum initiated by Israelis and Arabs. Once they got involved, they were effective. American presidents have capitalized on the so-called special relationship between the U.S. and Israel forged during the Cold War. America is the one power in the world that can reassure the Israelis that it will provide the security that Israel needs to take a risk on peace. Eugene Rogan is a historian at St. Anthony's College at Oxford and the author of The Arabs, A History. Rogan says the U.S. certainly has a role to play in Mideast peace, but there's an inherent flaw, and ironically, it's democracy. Politicians face a regular electoral cycle that has a much higher priority on their policies. Really, neither in Israel nor in the United States are politicians going to be able to take unpopular decisions with their electorate in the interest of securing Arab-Israeli peace. Take President Obama's experience. In his first term, he reached out to the Arab world with a speech in Cairo and set a goal of solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict once and for all. But unlike in Carter's time, Israeli and Palestinian leaders hadn't created any momentum on their own. Then President Obama backed off, and that hasn't been lost on the Palestinian public. On a hillside in the West Bank village of Silwad, several stunning new mansions with red-tiled roofs and handsome stonework are under construction. The mayor, Nael Hamid, says most of the houses are being built with money from families with relatives in the U.S. The economy is moving here, and the investment from America is vital, Hamid says. It's hard to overstate the economic ties between this village and the U.S. But when I ask Hamid about American political support, 
he's dismissive. Historically, he says, we have not seen the U.S. support Palestinian self-determination. Investments are one thing, Hamid says, but no American president has given us much political support. The Palestinian leadership in the West Bank finds itself caught between that skepticism, which it shares, and its dependence on Washington. Palestinian Authority spokeswoman Noor Oday says the West Bank leadership may be frustrated, but it's not turning away from the American president, whoever wins the election. Giving up on the president of the United States of America is not uh, under consideration, nor is it politically viable. We remain committed to having uh, very positive relations with the United States, and we remain hopeful that the United States will respect and, and uphold the principles that it stands for, including the universality of human rights, and that it will not make the Palestinians the exception of those rights. Israelis seem pretty happy with the laissez-faire approach to relations with the U.S., keep out of the peace process, and stick with us on security issues, like Iran. My name is Shlomit Rodnitsky, and my rank is captain, like her. My name is Mary Thornton, and my rank is captain, like her. (laughs) American and Israeli army officers posted near Tel Aviv recently took part in an air defense drill described as the largest ever joint U.S.-Israel military exercise. It's a signal of President Obama's commitment to Israel's security. Even so, polls show Israelis worry that Mr. Obama might use a second term to put pressure on Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians. Judging from this year's campaign rhetoric, though, Neither the president nor Governor Romney has signaled any real desire to revive the dormant Middle East peace process. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Next week from London, I'll be looking at how American presidents are imagined around the world as heroes, villains, and on the issue of climate change at least, as cowards. Back to Lisa Mullins in Boston in a moment, but for now from London... This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Transportation continues to be a huge challenge for New Yorkers. Getting around by subway, car, or bus is still all but impossible for some in the aftermath of Sandy. But many New Yorkers have discovered that they can get around just fine on their bikes. Caroline Sampanaro heads up bicycle advocacy at Transportation Alternatives. That's in New York City. She's not surprised that New Yorkers are dusting off their bikes, given recent efforts to make the Big Apple a world-class cycling city. What we've seen in New York City over the last 10 years is really a more than doubling in daily cycling. In the last five years, we've seen an expansion of the bike network, and it started with Mayor Bloomberg's Plan YC, 
which looks ahead and makes adjustments in the way that our transportation system works to take into account climate change and growing population like cities all over the world are doing. And who's doing the biking? Because if we look at the, these cities and countries that have been in the vanguard of, of uh, bicycling movements, are you seeing immigrant populations uh, up front, literally, figuratively, in New York? New York City runs on food delivery. There's a huge number of working cyclists every day in New York City, and I think that population of people is often taken for granted. We also have uh, are seeing for the first time families riding bikes, you know, kids riding bikes to schools, due in large part to protected bike lanes, you know, streets that are becoming safer and making it actually possible for families to ride a bike in the way that you might have done for years in, let's say, Amsterdam. It's also hard to think, though, in terms of gas prices, where in Europe they are so high, the taxes are so high that a lot of cars are off the road and uh, people take to their bikes. Relatively speaking, gas prices are much cheaper here in the United States, including in New York. Initially in New York City, after the hurricane, a lot of people got in their car and we saw a gridlock all over the city. And then the mayor called on people to stop driving alone and to carpool and made that mandatory. And I think, you know, that led to a real change. It's a teachable moment for New Yorkers to recognize their own ability to get around in ways they didn't think they could before. Caroline, wondering in closing here, if you have seen a city where you think uh, things meet the gold standard, which international city has got bicycling right? I love Paris. And I love Paris not because it's, you know, the bike mecca of the world. I know that Copenhagen and Amsterdam are often thought of as such. Um, I like Paris because it feels similar to New York City. It's a city that has a lot of demands on it. It's um, people depend on transit, people depend on driving. But what they've done in Paris over the last, you know, seven or so years is really start to integrate bicycling into the transit network. So you can use your transit card to get on a bike share bike, just like you could use it to get on a bus or a subway. And I think that does a huge amount of work to really change the way people think about bicycling. Thank you. Caroline Sempinaro, Director of Bicycle Advocacy at Transportation Alternatives in Manhattan. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Even as New York City struggles to return to normal, people there are starting to talk about that other big event coming up, the election. Elections in New York are conducted in dozens of languages. Under the U.S. Voting Rights Act, election materials and ballots are required to be translated if there's a significant number of local voters who don't speak English. The latest language that should be debuting on this year's ballots in parts of New York is Bengali, but it's not, as Nina Porzuki reports. Once a month, Zayn Ahmed treks from the Upper East Side of Manhattan to a windowless basement shop in Jackson Heights, Queens, just to get his hair cut. I changed like two or three trains just to get here. That's dedication, right? That is really dedication. (laughs) Ahmed is a bond researcher. Basically, he says he works in finance. From my point of view, I'm very concerned about the state of the economy and where we're headed. I am a Democrat. I do vote or will be voting for Obama. Ahmed was born in the U.S., but his parents are from Bangladesh, and he grew up speaking both English and Bengali. For him, language assistance at the polls isn't an issue. He didn't even know that Bengali translations would be available, or, for that matter, that the local Bangladeshi population has grown so much. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think that uh, the community was that big, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a little surprising. The community is that big. Big enough that, according to the latest census, there are enough limited English speakers of South Asian descent locally to require language assistance in Bengali, Punjabi, and Hindi at certain polling places. Of those languages, there are more Bengali speakers who speak limited English. So while there will be interpreters available for all three languages, 
officials chose to translate the ballot into just Bengali. Glenn Maguntai of the Asian American Legal and Education Fund says language assistance of non-English speakers is crucial. We believe that people should learn English as well. The reality, though, is that if people are not perfectly proficient in English and not proficient enough to read a ballot, should they be denied their right to vote? In Queens, more than 5,000 Bengali speakers should be able to cast their ballot in Bengali. But ballot translations were not completed in time. As to why, the New York City Board of Elections didn't respond. There will be some language assistance at the polls, interpreters and signage. There will even be sample ballots in Bengali. Just not, says Megbuntai, the real thing. So it's nice to have a sign that says no smoking here in five different languages. And it's very nice to have a sign, we think there should be, which identifies the poll site as the poll site, vote here. But really, there also have to be signs that the ballot that you mark to vote for the president or the senator or the member of Congress needs to be in languages that voters can actually understand. Madhuntai isn't quite sure how the lack of Bengali ballots will affect those 5,000 potential voters. Barbara Sunatan Sill is one of them. But when I asked about Bengali, he brushed off the question. He's less concerned about voting in his language, he says, and more concerned with deciding on whom to vote for president. You haven't decided yet? You're undecided? No, undecided. You're an undecided voter. Particular, I am not Democrat, I am not Republican. This surprises his Upper East Side customer, Zain Ahmed. Why are you shaking your head? Because he said he was a swing voter. (laughs) And for me, it's absurd. Like, you know, I mean, I consider myself, I mean, I'm a religious, middle-class minority. It's a very personal opinion, and I don't want to hurt anyone's opinion, but... The opposition is not in favor of people like me. So what are you telling him? I'm telling him that he should be voting (laughs) the way I am voting. But the swing voter barber shakes his head back at his Obama-supporting customer. For the barber, the biggest issue in this election season... I want a job. A lot of people is having no job, no nothing. No, but that's what I'm saying. If you vote for the right candidate, his policies will get you a job. What he has done in the past four years, he has stopped. Romney policy, I think, is good policy. No, what are you saying? What are you talking about? No, it's not. Not for people like us. And the discussion continues on just like that. And uh, Obama medical policy, I don't like that. You don't like Obamacare? No. Oh, come on. (laughs) I have insurance. I have no problem. No consensus in sight. I completely, totally, absolutely disagree with everything that he just said. Just like discussions in barbershops in Ohio or Florida, in a small basement shop in Jackson Heights, Queens, democracy is certainly alive and buzzing. But while Ahmed and Sil will be lucky enough to easily navigate the English ballots this election day, many of their neighbors may not. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki in Queens, New York. For more on language and the ballot, check out our podcast, The World in Words. You can listen at theworld.org slash language. We're parsing out the actual cost of extracting oil. That's coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Ahead on the world, we look at where the presidential candidates stand on climate change. And later, singer Nelly Furtado's new album, inspired by a year's worth of news. From Arab Spring to Occupy to overcoming natural disasters and tsunamis and financial crisis, I mean, there was a lot of, a lot to draw from. 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Government officials in New York and in New Jersey are asking for patience, but the patience of residents in the two states hardest hit by Hurricane Sandy appears to be getting thinner by the day. The region is still mired in a transportation nightmare, and the power is still not back in many affected areas. This is the kind of scenario that those who study climate change say may be more frequent in the future. The connections between Hurricane Sandy and climate change are murky. But with much of his city still paralyzed by the storm, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg found the links to climate change strong enough that he was compelled to endorse President Obama's bid for re-election yesterday. The main reason, Bloomberg said, was the president's stronger record on fighting climate change. And we've been covering the major candidates' stands on climate change here on the world throughout this campaign. But in light of the events of this past week, we thought it would be helpful to revisit the issue one last time with the world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. Peter, remind us what President Obama and Mitt Romney's positions are on climate change. Well, unless you've been paying extremely close attention to the race, you'd be hard-pressed to identify that either candidate has a position on climate change. And that's uh, one of the ironies of Mayor Bloomberg's endorsement of President Obama because even after Sandy, even as the media are all over the storm's possible links to climate change, the president still hasn't mentioned it explicitly. As far as I've heard right up to this afternoon, there's been nothing about it in the president's stump speeches. You won't hear anything about it in Mitt Romney's speeches either, and I could only find one single reference to climate on his campaign website, and that's actually a quote from a journalist about how much attention Obama is likely to give the issue if he is reelected, which, of course, implies that that's a bad thing. This is the same tone that Romney took in the only mention of the issue that I know of in any of his major campaign speeches, and that was his acceptance speech at the Republican convention. That's when he took this somewhat mocking swipe at the president. President Obama promised to begin to slow the rise of the oceans and to heal the planet. My promise is to help you and your family. So you'll hear there Romney was pretty much dismissing the concern about rising sea levels. But we actually know that one of the things that did contribute to Sandy's destruction was rising sea levels off the East Coast. But Mitt Romney sort of backed himself into a corner on this issue. And so far, he doesn't seem to be trying to talk himself out of that corner. Okay. So when Mitt Romney does talk seriously about climate change, what does he say he's going to do? Well, like so much else with Romney, it shifted significantly over the years. When he was governor here in Massachusetts, he said he accepted the mainstream science on climate change. And he even supported some local measures to start dealing with carbon dioxide emissions. But he's backpedaled since then. He's criticized the Obama administration's efforts to start cutting carbon emissions through the cap-and-trade program that failed so spectacularly in Congress. It's certainly clear that he doesn't think that this is a pressing issue. Let's turn to President Obama now. What does he say he will do about climate change if he's reelected? Well, like I said at the top, he's also said next to nothing. And that's a big change from his first campaign and his first couple of years in office. But I should say that unlike Romney, he did make one positive reference to it in his convention speech. Climate change is not a hoax. More droughts and floods and wildfires are not a joke. They are a threat to our children's future. And in this election, you can do something about it. 
And despite that cap-and-trade fiasco, Obama has fairly quietly started to do something about it. He cut a deal with car makers to roughly double fuel efficiency over the next 10 years or so. And he's famously put a lot of emphasis on developing new clean energy resources. So, Peter, what is the bottom line on how much Hurricane Sandy has changed the playing field? Well, of course, that remains to be seen. But it is possible that Sandy really will end up changing the politics of this issue, sort of the way that Katrina did. And it is possible that Romney could do sort of a Nixon to China pivot on this issue and with his strong free market credentials sort of take a very strong position on climate change. I suspect that is very unlikely. Um, Obama, of course, has a record of some accomplishment on the issue. And I imagine that if he is reelected very soon after the election, you will hear him start talking about Sandy and climate change and making it much more of a priority. Okay. Thank you. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. Thanks again. Thanks, Lisa. There are other reasons to invest in renewable energy. The world's Jason Margolis examines the true cost of extracting oil. How much does it cost to produce a barrel of oil? Ask an oil man and he'll likely give you a dollar amount. Ask somebody who studies what's called biophysical economics, which combines the disciplines of biology and economics, and you'll get a more nuanced response. What does it cost in energy terms to bring a unit of energy into the economy? How much energy do you spend to get a barrel of oil out of the ground, into a refinery, through a pipeline, and delivered? That's Eric Zensi with the Gund Institute for Ecological Economics at the University of Vermont. Back in the 1920s, oil was paying off at 100 to 1. It took one barrel of oil to extract, process, refine, ship, and deliver 100 barrels of oil. That's a phenomenal rate of return. If you work out the percentage, that's a 10,000% rate of return. But that's not the return today. Now, conventional oil production worldwide pays off at about a 20 to 1 ratio. And in Canada, where the oil comes from tar sands, it's 5 to 1. Renewable energy sources are paying off at higher rates, 12 to 1, 15 to 1, 17 to 1. That tells you right there, hmm, the age of oil should be over. A few problems with that, though. Calculating these figures is complicated and estimates fluctuate. One researcher I spoke with said he can look at the same wind farm and calculate a payoff of 20 to 1 or 4 to 1. He can also make the numbers dance for oil, too, by the way. It depends on if he factors in things like salaries, taxes, or subsidies. Even if oil is getting relatively more expensive, weaning ourselves off of it is not a matter of simply flipping a switch. The modern world runs on oil and gas, and there are powerful interests that would like to keep it that way. But we can't keep going like this much longer, says Nico Kosoy, an ecological economist at McGill University in Montreal. Eventually, our oil supplies will run dry, and as we dig up more fossil fuels, we emit more greenhouse gases and add to the problem of climate change. Kosoy says we need to get serious about limiting our use of fossil fuels. Either we do it now, and we do it systematically in organized fashion, or we will hit a hard boundary and we will all have to reduce consumption, but as a must. Words like this don't make for popular campaign slogans. Modern economies are centered around growth and consumption, and that requires traditional sources of energy. I asked Kasoy what he thinks when he hears politicians arguing over who can best steer the economy back toward more robust growth. Yeah, I listen to the debates and I laugh at them because all of them are, are missing the point. Not only Obama and Mitt Romney, but I'm also talking about the South American left, Chavez. I lived in Venezuela for 20-odd years. 
and it's unreal. This is a finite planet, and all of them are proposing as solutions more growth. Come on, this is a joke. Still, Kasoy remains optimistic about the future. He's pushing to make systematic changes today by choice rather than in the future out of necessity. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Energy is a huge problem in Haiti. The country has almost no conventional energy sources, so millions of Haitians rely on charcoal to cook their food, and that has led to massive deforestation. A couple of years ago, we reported on an innovative project in Haiti to start replacing charcoal with cooking briquettes made of recycled paper. Reporter Amy Bracken has this update. It started as an idea for helping to save Haiti's beleaguered forests, clean up a filthy Port-au-Prince neighborhood, put people to work, and reduce gang violence. It was an ambitious project, centered on a single, humble product. It was a recycling center in a dense and troubled neighborhood of Port-au-Prince that produced cooking fuel from compressed paper. Hundreds of youths were hired to clean up trash and bring it to the center where paper waste was processed into briquettes. The project was set up by the United Nations Development Program, or UNDP. The hope was to offset some of the demand for charcoal made from trees, which was ravaging Haiti's forests. And it worked, for a while. It even gained international attention from the likes of Bill Clinton. This could be done in every neighborhood in Port-au-Prince. It could be done in every city in Haiti. And if it were successful, it would sweep the poor urban areas of the world. I visited the plant in 2010, really just a big warehouse in the Carfoufoy neighborhood. It was bustling with workers pushing wheelbarrows of trash in one end and white paper briquettes the size of hockey pucks out the other. But two years later, well, the lock gate tells the story. Jean-Clairville was the center's security guard. He says late last year, someone from the UN came and closed the doors, saying the project had failed. Since then, Clairville says, no briquettes have been made. He says he has no work and the neighborhood is dirty again. It's a common lament here. Vladimir Jean-Baptiste ekes out a living making sandals. He says he and his neighbors felt like there was a change in Haiti when they saw the young people working. Now, he says, people are back to begging for money. No one disputes that the program worked well. The initial goal when it was launched in 2006 was to help tamp down growing gang violence. The UNDP's Laura Sheridan says it succeeded in that and much more, but she says the economics were always dicey. As it went on, um, it sort of became evident that this is okay just now. We're paying the, the wages for these people to work, to clean their community. is very good. But how can that be a long-term solution? The hope was that the sale of the paper briquettes and other recycled materials would cover the salaries of the workers. But that didn't happen. Even with free raw material, the new fuel was just too expensive to compete broadly with dirt-cheap charcoal. Father Gilbert Peltreau, the headmaster of a local Catholic school, says he's seen this happen before. Peltreau says he remembers when something called bip-ticherie came on the market. It was clean propane gas, he says, and it was subsidized so people could afford it. But then the subsidy ended and everyone went back to charcoal. 
For a while this time, Peltro's school used the recycled paper briquettes to cook students' lunches. They were a big customer. But since the factory closed, the school has had to go back to charcoal, which doesn't sit well with Father Peltro. It's the responsibility of both the government and those who want to help Haiti to get together and find a way to provide this service, Peltro says. The UNDP's Laura Sheridan says the agency still hopes to find a way to revive the project. She says it's turned the factory over to the government of Port-au-Prince, but the project has been slow to get traction with the city. The mayor has changed three times in Port-au-Prince since the start of this year, so we're following up with them constantly. For the moment, we don't have any funds and we don't have a project team working on it. I couldn't reach anyone from the mayor's office or the sanitation department to talk about the project, and the minister of the environment cancelled several scheduled interviews. But Haiti's former environment minister, Yves-André Wainwright, was willing to speak. He says the recycled paper briquettes and other alternatives to charcoal could be made to work with a simple change in national policy. The government must make charcoal less competitive, Wainwright says. He advocates a tax on charcoal, which could make alternatives like the recycled paper briquettes more economically viable. Sister Yola Norelus, an administrator at Saint-Gerard School, agrees that the fix really could be that simple. It's about means, Norelou says. As soon as it's affordable, everyone will adapt to the new fuel. The briquettes are better for them. And it seems that just about everyone agrees that the community-based recycling program to produce the new cooking fuel was a great idea. What seems to be eluding decision-makers is how to make it last. For The World, I'm Amy Bracken, Port-au-Prince. Amy Bracken sent us pictures from Haiti. Among other things, you can see how charcoal is sold on the streets of Port-au-Prince at theworld.org. You might remember the 2008 Oscar-winning film Slumdog Millionaire. It was set in India. Well, last year, India had a real slumdog millionaire. 28-year-old Sushil Kumar won a million dollars on India's version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Kumar says the win was a godsend. Overnight, I became known across India, and many of my problems were automatically solved. I feel it's miraculous. I never wanted to become a millionaire. God made me one. So a year since his big win, how are Kumar and his family doing? Kumar lives in a small town of Motihari in the northeastern state of Bihar. Kumar was a government worker. He was making about $100 a month before he became a millionaire. But the only two luxury items Kumar has splurged on so far, a small tablet computer and a power generator. Power outages are pretty frequent in town, so he wanted to make sure his family would get a continuous supply of electricity. You see, Kamar is still living in the same four-room house he shares with ten other family members. But that's about to change, too. He's bought land next door. He's building a big house for him and his wife, his parents, and his brothers and their families. Kumar's dad is still stunned that he can afford to get a gallon of milk at a time and buy expensive vegetables. Sushil Kumar has paid off his debts and saved the rest. He says he wants to spend his money wisely. After I won, I started getting letters asking for money to pay for people's operations, land, their children's weddings. But in our society, if you help one person, thousands start coming. We only helped people we were close to. A million is a lot, but if you help everyone, you'll lose it all in one day. 
By the way, that big house across the street, it's going to come in especially handy now. The family is expanding. Kamar's wife, Seema, who he married not long before he won the million dollars, is going to have a baby. For our GeoQuiz today, we're looking for a place dubbed the Hotel of Doom. Sounds like the kind of place where you check in, but you can't check out. Well, actually, this hotel isn't even opened yet. It's been under construction for more than two decades in the capital of a certain secretive communist country in Asia. Name that city with a weird new building. We will, right after the break. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Back to our GeoQuiz now, into that colossal skyscraper hotel in the communist capital we asked you to name. For the answer, we turn to Hannah Baraclough. She leads tours for the Beijing-based Choreo Tours to North Korea. Okay, so the hotel is located in Pyongyang, fairly near the center of Pyongyang, and it's called the Ryugyong Hotel, which means willow. Pyongyang used to be known as the Willow City. And it's a 330-meter-tall building, which is shaped like a pyramid. Some people describe it as looking like a rocket. And it's the most imposing structure in Pyongyang and can be seen from most places. And is it officially opened yet, the Ryukyong? No, it's not. It's not officially opened. We've been told it'll be another two to three years. So how would you describe the hotel? Because to others, as you know, including Esquire magazine, it's pretty darned ugly, called the Hotel of Doom. Yeah, I, I actually disagree with that. I don't think it's an ugly building. It's a massive pyramid. Now it's covered in glass, so kind of the sun shines off it. From the late 80s up until 2008, it was actually just a concrete structure. So maybe that's where it got the nickname Hotel of Doom and the ugliest building in the world. When did you see it? I went in end of September. If it's not going to be ready for occupancy for another couple of years, why are the North Koreans even letting people like you look at it now? We, um, we've been doing tours now to North Korea for 20 years. And the whole time that we've been running tours there, we've seen this structure. And it's been like, oh, it'd be really great to go and visit it. And eventually they, our partners there turned around and said that they'd managed to get me and another colleague access to the hotel. So, yeah, so we were able to go and see it, and we got taken up to the top to the viewing platform, which is on the 95th floor. And what did you see? The whole of Pyongyang. Um, I guess you would describe it. There's a lot of what you would think of as Soviet-style buildings, lots of apartment blocks. Um, There's monuments. There's a a couple of rivers that flow through it. The main one is the Taedonggang River. And it's so high that you can even see to kind of that agricultural land around the city as well. And the guy who took us up said that on very clear days, you can even see out to the West Sea. I think a lot of Americans assume, given the relations between the United States and the West and North Korea, that Americans can't go there. That's not the case, is it? No, it's not. Americans can travel there. And because, you know, it's, it's been described as like the most secretive nation in the world, the Hermit Kingdom, it has all these kind of names attached to it. Um, and it's true that, you, you know, you go there and you see a completely different side to what we usually hear about in the media. So it's, um, it's a very eye-opening, eye-opening trip. Would you recommend that they stay at the Hotel of Doom when it opens? Yeah, I would, I would absolutely recommend staying there when it opens. But it'll certainly be an experience to stay there, that's for sure. Hannah Baraclough, tourism manager with Koryo Tours, speaking to us about the Ryukyong Hotel in Pyongyang, North Korea, the answer to our GeoQuiz. Hannah, thanks a lot. No problem. Thank you very much. We've got pictures of the kind of scary-looking North Korean hotel in the making. It makes the hotel that I stayed in at a tourist resort in North Korea look tame. Check out all our pictures and hear the story about my 24 hours in North Korea at theworld.org. 
And finally today, Canadian singer Nelly Furtado found the inspiration for her latest album in a lot of places. There was the trip she made to Africa with the group Feed the Children and the book she read by Chilean author Isabel Allende about a slave rebellion in Haiti. Even the uprisings of the Arab Spring inspired a song for the album, as we're going to hear in a moment. First, here's the title track called Spirit Indestructible. So there's geography, literature, and history in Nelly Furtado's new album. But her real inspiration, she told me, are the people she meets. Just a few weeks ago, I was down at um, Regent Park Community Centre, which is sort of an at-risk neighbourhood in Toronto. Uh, They have just built this remarkable uh, centre for the arts. And I was at their sort of monthly jam night where it was an open mic. And, you know, I met these amazing girls who were in this dance group and they were just, you know, they were just so inspired. And I think it's the same community. Community is a universal experience about people getting together. I I firmly believe and I've always believed this. I mean, in the beginning of my career, my first album, I made very eclectic music. My influences were from, you know, Brazil and India and Portugal, where my parents are from. And, you know, for me, it's always been about uh, not focusing on differences, focusing on what's the same, you know, what's the same about about uh, people. So how did that bring you to um, the Arab Spring? I mean, you're talking about your own background, um, and you're kind of a citizen of the world. But on the very last track on this album, it's called Believers, and the subtitle is Arab Spring. Why did you choose to close the album with this, and what's it about? Well, I don't know. Sometimes half the time I I, I feel like... I was kind of lucky because I wrote this album during an incredible year of change in the world from Arab Spring to Occupy to overcoming natural disaster and tsunamis and financial crisis. I mean, there was a lot of a lot to draw from. So when I wrote Arab Spring, it was kind of like two or three weeks after the um, the revolution began in Libya. And um, I couldn't help but kind of get into the mindset of, of feeling, wow, how profound. What what a dilemma. Imagine waking up in the morning you know, with your best friend by your side, you're on the same team, you're fighting for the same things. And at the end of the day, they've crossed over to the other side. There's great things at stake. These are young people. You turn on the TV and see these young Libyan rebels. I mean, you know, it just touched me on a certain level. And, um, and I wrote the song from that perspective. You know, there's the pre-chorus says, where'd you go? All my friends, I thought you'd be here till the end. And I thought, wow, in North America, we don't have to deal with those issues, sir. We have to deal with other things, but nothing quite as profound as that. question. Uh, part of the lyrics of, of this last song, uh, you write, where are all the believers? Where are they when you need them? Uh, where are all the healers? Why'd they run away? Is is uh, is any of this written um, for you and your own sense of conscience, sense of faith? I think so. I think um, 
we all have to believe in something. I mean, you know, I think I was visiting a beautiful uh, temple where one of the Buddha's relics is uh, in Taiwan. My mother, who's been Roman Catholic her whole life, you know, had the vision of this large Buddha statue. She said, you know, we all we all need to believe, you know, and it's so true. We all believe in something and we all sort of need to believe in at least that there's um, there's something to fight for. Right. There's something to live for. There's a greater good, a greater purpose. That's Canadian singer Nelly Furtado. Her new album is The Spirit Indestructible. You can watch an interactive video from the album. It's at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Have a good weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.